0: You know, people uh, sometimes who know me kid about uh, my fascination with numbers. Uh, Biblical numerology is pretty uh, significant. Eight. Eight is the number of new beginnings. God created the heavens and earth in six days. Seven days he rested. On the eighth day, he continued to create. We're in John chapter 8 today, and we're going to look at a new beginning We're also in the eighth message of a 13-part series on forgiveness. And forgiveness, as you know, is the heart of the matter. It's the heart of the gospel. And so let's uh, turn our attention now. We begin in chapter 7 with the last verse and continue into chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to see him, and he sat down and taught them. Scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst, and they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what do you say? This they said to test him And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. It was days before the end of the Civil War and a general from the Union Army came in to see President Lincoln. And he said, Sir, it is days away from their surrender, the surrender of the rebels, and I have a question to ask you. My question is this. How do you intend to treat those who led the rebels against us? Lincoln looked the general in the eye and said, I intend to treat them In the only proper way, I intend to treat them as if they never left. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you think that general left? Happy or sad? When you come to John chapter 8, you come to one of the most controversial passages in all of the Bible. In fact, in certain translations, they don't even have it in the body of the text. You've got to go to the footnote. St. Augustine had such doubts about this text that he called it subscriptural. He had a hard time believing that God's Holy Spirit would have included this story in the text. And if you were to ask him why, he would tell you why. Because it gave women permission and justification for infidelity. You know, St. Augustine wasn't the only one. I have a friend, one of my Heroes of preaching, Ben Hayden, Chattanooga, Tennessee. He has a radio broadcast. It's broadcast uh, even today to about 300 or 400 stations. But a number of years ago, they took him off the air in Philadelphia because he preached this text. And when the station manager would ask why, he said, he's too controversial for us. But you know what's even worse What's even worse is somebody like Alexander McLaren, who is a tremendous Scottish theologian and preacher of 150 years ago. McLaren joined the chorus of churchmen and scholars who say this text is out of place at best. In fact, it's a different kind of Greek, it doesn't even read like John. It's probably an insertion that doesn't even belong in any gospel. The reason I say that's the most egregious is because I think this text fit perfectly in the gospel right at this spot. Let me give you the reason why I think that. We could start in John chapter 1, but let's start in John chapter 5. You got to, It begins, that chapter begins with a man who has been paralyzed, lame, and blind for 38 years. He's lying by the pool near the sheep gate, and Jesus comes to him. Now, this is a guy who can't go anywhere. He is blind, lame, and paralyzed. Jesus comes to him in his infirmity, in his inability to do anything. Jesus comes to him and asks him a question, do you want to be well? And Jesus heals him. Now, that's the first story in the fifth chapter of John, and the balance of that chapter is using that miracle of healing as a backdrop to show us who is most blind, most lame, most paralyzed, and those are the religious leaders of Jerusalem and in all of Israel. John chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000 men, who knows how many women and children. That miracle of great provision. Five loaves, two fish. John uses that miracle of feeding 5,000 men as a backdrop for Jesus declaring his first statement of identity, I am the bread of life. John chapter 7. Jesus refuses to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem when his brothers and sisters ask him to go. John uses that beginning of the chapter as a backdrop for the coming of the Holy Spirit who will glorify Jesus and do for Jesus what Jesus chose not to do for himself. You get it? The first part of the chapter is the setup for the rest of the chapter. The rest of the chapter elucidates, explains, drives home the point of Jesus' statements or Jesus' miracles. And John chapter 8 is no different. The last verse of chapter 7. They each went to their own house... Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why? Because there was no room in Jerusalem for Jesus. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, the last of seven feasts in the Jewish calendar year. It's the last, it's the third of the great feasts, lasting eight days. It said that Jews from all over the world would descend upon the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, and they would stay there. It was crowded. Now think of this. The city of God had no room for God. The city of God had no room. The people of God had no room for God in the flesh. So they go to their houses. Jesus goes out to the Mount of Olives. And John says, Jesus comes into the city early in the morning, the first light of the day. Now, what was the Feast of Tabernacles? You can summarize it in two words, deliverance and freedom. They were celebrating 40 years in the wilderness being over. That God had put their sin behind them. Remember, the Lord said, you'll wander for 40 years because of your unbelief. And what they were celebrating is the fact that God kept his promise. After 40 years, he brought them into the land of Canaan. Their deliverance and their freedom. And so what do these... Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, do on one of the last days of that feast, maybe day five, six, or seven, or maybe eight. They come at a time when the people of God are celebrating their deliverance and their freedom to destroy Jesus, to entrap him, not to drive him away, but to destroy him. Listen to verse 12. We only read through 11. Verse 12, And Jesus said to them, I am the light of the world. Verse 35, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Verse 58, Before Abraham was, I am. Do you know the grounds on which Jesus can say it? What he does in verses 57-57. verse 11 of chapter 8. I'm the light of the world. Whoever I set free is free indeed. Before Abraham was, I am. Every one of those statements derives from what Jesus does with this woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. It's all about forgiveness. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the heart of the matter. So let's dig in. First of all, notice, if you will, the timing. Look at verse 2. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Now, you've got to get the scene here. For the Jews, the Feast of Tabernacles, the last feast of the year, was always held on the 15th day of the seventh month. They had a different calendar. Because to us and to the modern Jew, the Feast of Tabernacles occurs in the ninth or tenth month, September, October. It's the fall festival. But more importantly, the Feast of Tabernacles began five days after the greatest holiest, most significant day in the history of Israel every year was celebrated. And what was that day? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was the tenth day of the seventh month. The Feast of Tabernacles began on the fifteenth day of the seventh month. Now, on the ninth day of the seventh month, the day before the Day of Atonement, Every Jew was required to fast for 25 hours. No food, no drink. And during those 25 hours, the first 12 hours, every synagogue in Israel was open for one reason to have a time of prayer for repentance, to ask God for his forgiveness. So right before the Day of Atonement, one day before that day, they would fast for 25 hours, and they would pray together in a synagogue for 12 hours, prayers of repentance. In addition to that, for 10 days before the Day of Atonement, they would were required to go to anybody that they had offended anybody that they had violated over the course of that previous year and asked for forgiveness. Ten days, they were to go to people that they had, had offended and ask forgiveness. And you know what? If the person didn't give it forgiveness, they were to go back again. If they were rebuffed a second time, they were to go back a third time. And after three times, they're let off the hook. And Tim will talk about that next week as he talks about Peter. Remember when Peter says, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? All he's doing is saying, well, the law says three. I'll add another three and one for good measure. Remember Jesus' answer? If you don't remember, come next week and you'll get the answer. So there's all kinds of preparation that's going on. And the reason they would ask forgiveness for 10 days from others and for 12 hours from God and fast for 25 hours was because the rabbis taught that every person, the record of every person's life was written in a book called the book of life. And on the day of atonement, the verdict on each life would be rendered. So you better get ready. You better clean yourself up. You better do everything you can because on that day of atonement, the judgment of God will fall on every life. That's what they taught. I want you to listen to a prayer that was prayed in the synagogue. The leader of the synagogue would pray this and everyone would repeat it. This is just a section. For sin I have committed under stress or through my own choice, I ask forgiveness, O Lord. For sins that I have committed in stubbornness or in error, I ask forgiveness, O Lord. For sin that I have committed because of the evil meditations of my heart, I ask forgiveness, O Lord. For sin that I have committed by my word, I ask forgiveness, O Lord. For sins I have committed through the abuse of my power, I ask forgiveness, O Lord. For sin that I've committed by exploiting my neighbor, I ask forgiveness, O Lord. For all these sins, O God of forgiveness, bear with us, pardon us, forgive us. And you know who sanctioned those prayers? The scribes and the Pharisees. They sanctioned those prayers. The leaders of Israel, every time every one of those confessions was spoken, they would lead the people in taking their fists and beating their chests as a sign of contrition, as a sign of absolute sincerity. So think of this. In less than two weeks... These leaders, these religious people, they are violating every one of those confessions. They're abusing their power. They're exploiting a woman. In less than two weeks, these people who should have known better who believe that they had earned the forgiveness of God, what are they doing? They're demonstrating that they've received no forgiveness at all. In less than two weeks, they're exploiting their neighbor, they're abusing their power, they're standing before the one who is the only final atoning, sacrifice, believing that they are pure. And you know what? They're not a lot different than us. Second, I want you to notice the test. Look at verses 4 and 5. They said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. You know, years ago, there was a guy who said to me after I preached on this text, this was, you know, like 30 years ago, he said, I never thought she was in the act. Really? Whoa! (laughs) This woman, it's right there, caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And for years, I explained the test. I mean, it's not hard. If he says, stoner, then the Romans have a problem. No Jew could sanction the death of another unless the Romans agreed. If he says, don't stoner, then he's got a problem with the law of Moses. But there's much more here than that. You see, at the Feast of the Tabernacles, that eight-day festival, the first thing that they would do, the high priest would light huge candelabras in the outer court. That's the court of the Gentiles. It's said that the light was so intense at nighttime that it illuminated every part of Jerusalem. Some even suggest that there were no shadows because of the brilliance of the light. And the reason they would... Light those huge candelabras in the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple, was because they believed that the Messiah who was coming would be a light to the Gentiles. The high priest would do something else. He'd go to the pool of Siloam and there he'd take a large vessel and he'd dip it into the water and then he'd carry that water all the way back into the temple where he would pour it in a silver basin next to the bronze altar. Why? Why? As a symbol of he and Israel's greatest desire for the Holy Spirit to be poured out on the land of Israel. So think of this. Sitting before them, bathed in the light of the candelabras, bathed in the light of the sunrise, is not only the light of the Gentiles, he's the light of the world. Not only is he the light of the world, he's the river of living water. He's the light that they're looking for. He's the water that they desperately need. And yet, what do these leaders who should have known say to him? In the law, Moses told us to stone her. What do you say? They are speaking to the one who wrote the law. They're speaking to one who is greater than Moses. When they offer him his test, the truth is they're testing themselves even though they don't know it. And guess what? They fail miserably. Then third, notice the trial. Look at verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, what does that mean? Jesus, what do you do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I mean, it's like the kid. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? As they continued to ask him, Jesus stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now this is the only time in the Bible that Jesus writes. The Bible says he writes with his finger, that's the instrument. He bends down and writes. Now listen to Exodus 31 verse 18. And God gave Moses two tablets of testimony written by the finger of God. Now remember, God wrote twice. The first set of tablets, Moses was ticked off and threw down and broke. And then God wrote them again. So in the Old Testament, God writes once, one time, with his finger, and he did it twice. In the New Testament, God writes once, with his finger, and he does it twice. In the Old Testament, God wrote with his finger on a hard ground, stone. In the New Testament, God wrote in soft ground, dust. You see, there's so many parallels here, it's nearly impossible to ask, what did Jesus write? And yet people have asked that question for centuries. Commentators ask that question. They posit guesses. It seems to me it's patently obvious what he wrote. He wrote what his father wrote, which is the law. So think of it. These scribes and Pharisees come citing the law, and Jesus stoops and writes it. They cite the law of Moses. Jesus writes the law of God. They come seeking to use the law of Moses as a hammer. What does Jesus do when he stoops and writes? He doesn't use it as a hammer. He uses it the way God always uses it, and that's as a mirror. Or as my mother would say, mirror. Martin Luther once said, the law of God is a mirror to show us our sin. That's exactly how Jesus is using it. He's shining the light of his own character, the light of his own power, the light of his own deity into the law, which is the mirror. And guess what they're seeing? They're seeing their own sin, their own dirt. Why? Because John says, from the oldest to the youngest, they all walk away. And then fourth and finally, notice the tenderness. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up, said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. Now think of that. Here is the only one who can legitimately condemn her. Here's the only one who can stand and look into the mirror and see no dirt. Here's the only one who can look at her, who is completely without any dirt, and when he looks at her, what does he see? He doesn't see any dirt. He looks at her and does not see any dirt. Why? because he's determined to take it. He's determined to take all of the dirt that is in her and put it on himself. You see that's what those those radio guys in Philadelphia didn't understand. That's what Saint Augustine didn't understand. That's what drives every religion is crazy. They say, how could he not condemn her? How could he give her a free pass? How could he send her away free of any penalty? And there's only one way he could do it. The only way he can say, neither do I condemn you is by taking all of her condemnation on himself. I mean, we said this last week and it bears repeating. Every sin has a cost. If I steal a hundred bucks from you and you forgive me, you're out a hundred bucks. I mean, sometimes we say, oh no, if you're really going to be forgiven, you got to pay it back. That's not forgiveness. Every sin has a cost. And when Jesus sees this woman... He determines, he's already determined it, that he will take the cost of her sin on himself. Do you see this? He's not excusing her sin. He's paying for it. He's taking it. He's determined that he will pay the cost of that sin to the last penny. Now think of what these religionists are doing here. They are celebrating their own deliverance by enslaving others. You see, this woman isn't the only adulteress here. Everyone in this story is an adulterer or an adulteress, but Jesus. There's only one person in the story who is free. There's only one person in this story who can see the sin under the sin. And what the sin is under the sin is a heart that desperately is looking for love and acceptance and worth outside of Jesus. Well, adultery is a symptom. It's a symptom. Of her deeper need, the only person in this story who knows the cost of her deepest longing is Jesus. There's only one person who knows what she needs. What she needs is what we need. It's not the fondness of another lover, it's the forgiveness of a Savior. What we need is not to try to clean up our own act because we can't. What we need is to see that there is only one act that can satisfy our desperate heart. And that's the act of forgiveness through Jesus' sacrifice. You see, her deepest need is your deepest need. Her deepest need is the need of every scribe and Pharisee. The deepest need in her life and in their life and in our life is for a new identity. And there's only one way. There's only one way that our new identity can be fixed. And that's by having all of the condemnation we deserve to receive, not excused, but paid for. That's exactly what Jesus has done. That's why he says, I'm the light of the world. That's why he says, those I set free will be free indeed. That's how he can say, before Abraham was... I am and I am committed to changing your heart. That's exactly what he does. And you know, it's proven in what he says. He doesn't say what the scribes and Pharisees would have said, which is this. Go and sin no more. And I won't condemn you. He doesn't say what those radio guys in Philadelphia would say. Go and sin no more. Clean up your act. And then I won't condemn you. He doesn't say what Augustine would say. Go and sin no more. And I won't condemn you. You know why Augustine said that? Because he was a philanderer. Until he was 32. 32. He was acquainted with infidelity. The God of religion says, you stop sinning and I won't condemn you. And you know what? none, None of us can. I mean, for years... Years, decades, I've seen people laboring under the God of religion. That's the majority report. I've got to fix myself, and then God won't condemn me. You can't. The God of the gospel says, I do not condemn you because I've condemned myself. And as a result of what I've done, go. Go. You're free. You don't have to live in bondage to that sin. I've met your deepest need. You see, his forgiveness takes the threat away. His forgiveness says, I will take what you deserve and give you what you desperately need, what you never deserve. And that is no longer a restless heart, but a satisfied heart. It's all about forgiveness, it's all about Jesus. He is the one you need. I need forever. Amen.